Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another hour of Cisco and Falzone Hour, broadcast in politics. Tonight we have a special guest. Mark, you want to introduce him? Who, who the person uh, is for today? Maybe, maybe you should go ahead. Okay, tonight we're going to have the General Counsel of the Federalist Society for Law, Dean Roder, and he's a fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University and Antonian Scalia Law School. You know, remember uh, Judge Scalia, Mark? Of course. Yes, Our yes. Poor so. judge. So Our the topic assassinated Supreme Court Justice. Exactly. So tonight we he's going to be talking about the hidden Nazi, the untold story of American dealing with the devil, the untold story. So we'll, he'll be joining us in in about five minutes. So wait a second. Mark, wait a second. You do you mean that literally? That's the name of the book that he wrote. Oh, he wrote dealing a book with about. the devil. Dealing with the devil, you know, it's like sometimes we have to deal with, you know, we have to deal with the Chinese or we have to deal with the Russians, you know, we have to, you know, they're the devil. So, but he no, wrote the book. only if you're Obama, if you're Trump, you can't be talking to them. It, it shows you're, uh, you know, stupid. Only Obama right. gets to talk to them. He's cool. <laughs> well, congratulations uh, in regards to... Uh, Phil Murphy, your governor in New Jersey, basically said that he's going to really come down hard on on the uh, individuals that do not respect the um, state, the shelter at home or uh, staying at home policy. What do you how well, do you see that? That's the uh, you know that's the classic selective enforcement of the law yeah. by these mm-hmm. uh, leftist ideologues because if if you're an illegal alien, uh, they uh, just about put you up on a five-star hotel yeah. uh, and take care of, of your every whim. You know, I, I'm surprised they don't start, uh, you know, we, we're going to have to provide illegal drugs to the illegal aliens so that they stay <laughs> in line, you know, or something like that. That's the only thing they aren't doing. Yeah. Right, right. But if you're a citizen, keep your fanny inside or we drag you out to the guillotine. I mean, come on now. So when are the people of New Jersey, the people of New York, going to stand up like the the people in Michigan are doing? The people in Michigan came out against Greta Greta, uh, Whitman, and they said, basically, we had enough of this. We don't want your shelter-at-home policy. And they came out and protested in East Lansing, in Lansing, Michigan, where the capital the governor's mansion is protesting what they call basically a uh, little, little dictatorship that she's trying to have in the state of Michigan. Right, right, right. Well, you know what? We are, uh, there's rumblings here in New Jersey, sir. Don't uh, count as, you know, we may have been knocked down, but uh, right. that don't mean the fight's over. Uh, no, they're having a rap. They're having a rally in Trenton. And they're oh, wow. asking for rallies at the uh, uh, city buildings all across Very. New Jersey, and they're calling for this tomorrow. Yeah, Very please, good. You know what? As, as the show progresses, I'll provide some details good. on this uh, uprising that's going on. And please, for the time being, leave your torches and pitchforks at home. Now is not <laughs> the time for that. <laughs> That's a good one, Mark. Yeah, uh, I think I think I think more more uh, more states are going to be going in that direction. Uh, I think the president coming out and saying that 29 states are going to gradually phase in. Uh, well, back it, in. I, I understand that, but I mean the whole thing is upsetting to me. I mean, here's how I look at: it. we've been lied to over every stinking thing for three years. Yes. All of a sudden, the media has a come-to-Jesus moment and is telling us the truth. Baloney. The numbers, <laughs> I, I haven't believed the numbers from day one. Definitely. Okay, day one. They, I know that they're inflating it. They're fueling the panic. And I'm going to yeah. go on a rant here. 
because they're <laughs> evil, malevolent, yeah. vicious people love misery in the uh, masses, that love Definitely. poverty in the masses, that, okay. that love te- that tension and the grief that it causes the masses. They love yes. that. They want to grind America's face into the mud and, and laugh while they're doing it. And they're Mark, doing it. Mark, I totally what? agree with you. Let, we, got, we just got to bring the guests in now. Okay, uh, sure. Hello, this is Dean. Dean, how are you? Welcome Good. to the Cisco and Falstone Hour Broadcasting Politics tonight. Um, welcome. We I briefly interview, uh, introduced you, but can you go ahead and, and, and expand on what you have done, your book, uh, so our listening audience can actually get a better picture of, you know, what you you've done and uh, what it means to be the general counsel of the Federalist Society of Law and Public Policy. Sure, of course. Let me take those things in reverse order. Uh, the Federalist Society is a membership organization of uh, conservative and libertarian lawyers uh, nationwide across the country. So as the general counsel, I handle all the legal issues for the organization, but I also help uh, do a lot of the programming, put together a lot of the programming, debates, and panel discussions of the organization. But what I'm really uh, uh, talking to you guys tonight about is my book, The Hidden Nazi, um, which is a, a nonfiction uh, so true story about a Nazi SS general, a guy by the name of Hans Kommler, who's mm-hmm. a perfect, perfectly evil uh, fellow, even for an SS Nazi general, he was despicable. Um, but he was also extraordinarily powerful, um, but he's never been written about. Uh, so he is a truly enormous figure in history that nobody has paid attention to. Nobody's written about. Uh, history has ignored him. He's escaped justice because... According to conventional history, at the end of the war, at the end of World War II, uh, he walked off into the woods and killed himself. But uh, me and my team, uh, a couple of researchers and my co-authors, um, pieced this together and with government uh, documents can prove that he didn't actually die at the end of the war. He was engaged in a cover-up aided by the Americans and survived the war and escaped justice. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to. I think on, on the press release that I emailed you, we're going to touch also on, on things in regards to what's cur- currently happening in the in the U.S. and, and around the globe too. Sure. Uh, a touch uh, in regards to what the Federalist uh, members or individuals that are part of the Federalist Society. What? How, how are they looking at the current situation where we have a little tyranny that's occurring in different parts of the United States with different governors and and basically implementing, like this past weekend in Louisville, Kentucky, Mayor Greg Fisher said, well, you know, if you're a Christian and, you're, and you want to uh, celebrate Easter, no, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. We're going we're gonna to basically uh, penalize you. Or like the governor in, 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 uh, in, in, in Kentucky doing the same thing uh, in South Carolina, and not in South Carolina, in, in Colorado, in Michigan, all these very, very, very rigid totalitarian ways of implementing uh, control over the, the people. So I wanted to touch on that and get the perspective of the Federalists. Well, so the Federalist Society itself doesn't take any positions, but I can tell you uh, those, these are exactly the kinds of issues that our members, our members uh, take a lot of positions and they hold a lot of views, but these are precisely the kinds of issues that you're outlining that uh, are important to our members. Um, they're very concerned with the size of government, the power of government, uh, the separation of powers within government. So the idea that uh, no one person or no one body, no one court, no one legislature, uh, no single president or governor has so much power that it's all divided and shared between different elements of the government, and that's a way to prevent tyranny. Uh, right. there, there, are, there are times in our history when there's a crisis oftentimes a war, uh, sometimes a pandemic. Um, And during those times, um, different leaders can uh, take advantage of the situation and claim extraordinary powers. Um, 
but it's up to the other branches of government and it's up to the public to resist uh, right. those incursions and make sure that the exercise of power is proper. Right. Uh, and again, like the, uh, a certain party that uh, has come out and, and said, certain members have said, never let a crisis go, go to waste. Uh, so basically, it, you need to take uh, the opportunity to get as much out of that crisis uh, as you can. But, uh, and this is not just in the United States. This is happening on a global scale. I was watching uh, videos from Germany where there's a, somewhat of an uprise. So this is a global, global uh, uprise that is beginning to occur. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, this is this is a worldwide pandemic, and so there is a worldwide governmental response. And uh, it's it's very interesting to watch the different governments in different parts of the world react differently. Uh, one right. thing that's interesting about the the United States is our federal system of of government. We have a strong federal government, but then we have state governments um, that run each state. And that's one of the things that concerns uh, smart people, is the division of power between the federal government and the state government. And, and at a moment like this, if there is, if you assume there is a real crisis, uh, who has the power to deal with it? Uh, and does it matter, is it important that New York is different than uh, South Dakota in terms of uh, not only what its people want, maybe, but um, the, uh, the, uh, the reality on the ground in terms of the virus. Uh, you know, cities are certainly different than they are uh, in the countryside. So maybe the powers that need to be exercised by a governor are different in, in New York than they should be in South Dakota or Wyoming or Nevada. You brought up, you brought up an excellent comparison because I was just reading about it. Uh, the governor of, of South Dakota, Sheila, she's one of the very few who has not implemented a stay-at-home policy, and their numbers are very low. Contrary to New York and New Jersey, which are Mark, who's, who's uh, from New Jersey, they have a high number, and they've been on lockdown for quite a while now. So you start seeing where the, where's the contrast? You know, where's the comparison between t- these two states? One governor is taking an open policy and, and, and basically putting the trust in the people, the other governor in New York, in New Jersey, they're not. Well, I think that's exactly right. And it'll be interesting to see how this continues to play out in one state versus another, and then at at a global level, one country versus another. I I think it's always, always smart for people to be wondering about the exercise of governmental powers. And one of the concerns, even when there's a legitimate a legitimate crisis, take World War II, for example. Uh, right. At a time like that, there were some extraordinary powers um, exercised and some extraordinary sacrifices made by citizens. Um, the, the, the big question then becomes, uh, at the end of everything, do you get back to uh, a point where government or powers were as modest as they were that might not be the wrong the right word but um you get back to a point after the crisis where government powers become restrained again uh, right. even even if there is a legitimate crisis after the crisis abates you should get back to the point you were at before in terms of uh, the governmental power the division of power and how much power the government has vis-a-vis the people right and we're, then, we're actually we're actually facing this situation right now with certain governors from Certain states basically say, indicating that they that the president does not have the total power of let, uh, bringing bringing the uh, bringing the uh, the states in line for opening up the uh, back to business open uh, open business to to the general public and governors like Cuomo Andrew Cuomo are saying that the president does not have that power. What is your take on that? Well, so that's a great question, and it, it's really interesting to watch the different sides of the political aisle flip back and forth, um, uh, sometimes claiming the president is not reacting strongly enough, um, and then the same people claiming the, the president's reacting too strongly, uh, too unilaterally. Um, but those are the right questions uh, to be asking. It's like, who has the power at this moment? Um, you know, 
our founders in the in the Constitution, uh, they you know the power resides with the people. The people gave up some power to the states, and the people in the states gave up some power to the federal government. Mm, but the original, okay. the original the original vision is the police powers, and I don't mean uh, you know the San Francisco police or the state police. <laughs> I mean. I mean uh, a legal term, which is police powers, which is to look out for the for the good of your people. That really that really resides at the state level, not at the federal level. The federal Got government, I, I think, the federal government is best understood as uh, having having the greatest amount of power when it's looking outside our borders, when it's looking to foreign enemies, or when it's regulating trade with foreign countries or entering into treaties. But when it comes down to, you know, the legalization or the criminalization of drugs or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, standard criminal laws, uh, vi- crimes of violence, rape, murder, um, those are state issues, I think. And um, right. that the power to the power to regulate those and to oversee those uh, is best understood as residing at the state level. Um, so those yeah. questions become increasingly important. Uh, when you have national issues, how the power gets applied. Definitely. Definitely. Dean, uh, I have two uh, callers. 732-865, do you have a question for Dean? No, that's me, sir. I don't. I just uh, uh, okay. I was listening to you. I was listening to your discussion, and okay. it all seems predicated on if you uh, have faith in the uh, numbers that are being publicized, and I just don't. Uh, I, I know, I damn know that they're inflating the numbers to fuel the panic, to keep the, the public on the uh, heels of their feet. This is what's, what's going on, and to keep America on the heels of her feet instead of on her right. toes, where she was. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, Cisco, you... you, you you were talking about this at this state and that state. I don't believe their numbers. They're lying. It's bull- It's crap. Excuse my French. But how <laughs> did that oh. proceed? <laughs> well, sister, yeah. there's, I think there's an interesting there's an interesting point here. Uh, I think the caller is mm-hmm. making, um, and and it raises an interesting question in and of itself. And that's I mentioned how power sometimes can be perceived to be enlarged during a crisis, but that's right. uh, that. That begs another question. Who gets to decide when we're in a crisis? I think during World War II, right. there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of debate that, uh, you know, once Pearl Harbor was bombed, we were at war. Other countries declared war with us, so we can't pretend not to be at war. But uh, when there's a, pa- a pandemic and people are arguing over the extent of it, the virulence of it, uh, how cataclysmic it could become – um, you know, the question then becomes, who gets to decide these issues and, and that trigger increased governmental power, that, that trigger a more robust uh, response from government? And I think what the caller is saying is he doesn't, he doesn't believe the predicate here. He doesn't believe that there is a uh, national or international crisis, and therefore uh, the governmental power should not be increased. That, that's correct, sir, but I'm not a caller. I'm actually the uh, co-host. Oh, but I beg your pardon. <laughs> that, that's yeah. quite right. But uh, yeah. you see, things, things like you don't think Mario Cuomo, I mean not Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, loves being on television every day to give his coronavirus update. I mean these <laughs> egomaniac lunatics, you know, just um, he's loving this. This guy, he has to be forget it. He hasn't had sex in three weeks. He doesn't have to. <laughs> okay, we have we have a eight one three four two four. You have a question for Dean? Not at this time. Not at okay, this not at time. The, okay. So, Dean, getting back to your uh, your book in regards to, there's been a, a lot of discussions in regards to Holocaust deniers who didn't did not believe that this whole situation happened. Auschwitz concentration camp did not happen. Where are they getting these, these, this mindset? Because there yeah. is history. There's data. There's data. There's information. There's 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 something there that has happened. So I, I don't I don't understand that. Can you wait? Can I answer this question very easy? It's uh, Arab Arab oil money fueled 
propaganda. That's why. Because obviously the Holocaust did occur. If you want to deny it, then okay, the, the sun rises in the north, and we'll just move along. But uh, it's Arab-fueled money propaganda. That's what's okay. going on. All right, but Thank Dean, you, we'd love to hear your uh, insight on that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. definitely. Sure. <laughs> let me let me just say the Holocaust did happen. The book yes. I wrote, the the book I wrote, the Hidden Nazi. That does a lot to to document that. Not that it needs documenting. Uh, it's it's beyond uh, really um, any sort of rebuttal that the Holocaust happened. What I tried to do in my book was document the involvement of one particular fellow, uh, one particular Nazi general, Hans Kammler, who I think uh, you know helped make the Holocaust possible. He is the guy who identified Auschwitz as the major camp site. Uh, then he helped design Auschwitz. He was an architect and an engineer. Uh, we've got the, the papers of him signing the orders, identifying the site, and then building out the camp, doubling the size of the camp, then redoubling the size of the camp, uh, then him ordering and then overseeing the installation of the gas chambers and the oven. Uh, it was his deputy that was running the architectural office at Auschwitz. And, uh, you know, he did this not from his Berlin office. He was there. Uh, weekly, sometimes daily, and and then he reproduced his work. He standardized these methods. The barracks were standardized. The ovens, the gas chambers were standardized. He did this again and again at killing camps throughout the Third Reich. Uh, so, you know, there's no doubt the Holocaust happened. Uh, it's, it's really beyond argument. Um, there's some question as to exactly how many millions of people were killed. There's some debate about that because of the record keeping, but it was millions of people that were murdered uh, in a genocide. Um, as to why people would deny this, I think there are some political reasons to deny it. I think, you know, the the the, the kindest thing I could say to some people who might deny it is it's it is such a ghastly, overwhelming thing to contemplate. Uh, men murdering millions of men, women, and children that, you know, you might have some instinct to think this is just not possible. People wouldn't do that to each other. But I don't think the Holocaust deniers have that motivation. I think they have uh, – I don't think their motives are as nuanced as that. Got it. And and in and, and, and regards to the, the whole – uh, Nazi, uh, German, uh, Hitler. How, how, how did that come into play in regards to when when they, they decided to go after a certain ethnic group or a certain race? How did they come to that conclusion? You know, based well, on, yeah. on, on on the on these uh, Nazi generals that that basically were working for Adolf Hitler. When, at what point did they say, well, this is the people that we need to exterminate? Uh, that's another good question. And I don't think there was a particular day or a particular moment in time. You know, when uh, Hitler was in jail in the early 1920s, 1923, he writes Mein Kampf. Uh, that's a tome, uh, sort of a screed, uh, in which he blames a lot of the ills of society on uh, communism, Bolshevism, and uh, Judaism. Uh, and he never retreated from that position. Uh, he thought, uh, and then, you know, Germany in, in 1918, 1919 loses World War I. Um, that war is settled by the Treaty of Versailles, under which Germany has to pay reparations. The economy is in terrible shape in Germany. People are suffering. They're looking for uh, some excuse, some reason that this highly cultured, um, highly advanced society is failing economically. And Hitler rises to power, and he blames it on the Jews. Uh, he's not the first anti-Semite. I mean, there are uh, centuries of anti-Semitism in our, in our world, um, but Hitler took advantage of that. He truly believed uh, that, that Jews were evil. He truly believed they were the scourge of Germany, um, and he truly believed that he was doing the world in fa a favor uh, in, in ridding, uh, ridding the world of Jews. I mean, he was a despicable human being. Uh, so it started from the, you know, from the very beginning, long before Hitler came to power. Uh, he became chancellor uh, in 1933 and president shortly thereafter of Germany. Uh, and then he began to implement his policies, his, his anti-Semitic policies. And you know, I show in the book, The Hidden Nazi, he did it 
gradually, by increments. At first, you know, Jews were not allowed to go into certain uh, colleges and universities, and then Jews couldn't own certain businesses, and then Jews couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. And, um, you know, each of these things taken one step at a time uh, were offensive to good people, but they, they, they thought in the moment, it's like, that, that's not terrible. It's not the end of the world. And then there are these secondary gains that you can imagine. If if your Jewish neighbor uh, has to leave town, uh, if he's not allowed to live in that part of the neighborhood anymore, he's selling his house. Maybe you can maybe you can buy his house from him at a discount. So you get this secondary gain. Um, and you know, then the Nuremberg Laws in 1935 came to pass, and then you see a rise of persecution of the Jews in an organized fashion by. Uh, by Hitler and his thugs, the SD and the SS, um, right. and it just it just took off from there. Um, and after the war was underway, uh, Germany began to win. Um, you know, they 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 conquered uh, Austria in a diplomatic coup in the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia. But then, in, in a military fashion, took over Poland, France, the lower countries, um, and then right. began to extract the Jewish population from those countries they were conquering and exterminate them. Um, I think one of the most extraordinary things about the Holocaust is a lot of people who are not Holocaust deniers, they're, I would describe them as somewhat not, not apologists in that sense, but um, that, that there, there are a lot of folks who want to believe that uh, the extermination of the Jews and the enslavement of the Jews, using Jews as slave laborers, was done by a very small number. It was accomplished by some microcosm of high Nazi officials. And having having researched for the book The Hidden Nazi, I don't think that's true. I think, at a minimum, the use of, of slaves and slave labor was widely known um, in Germany. Um, and it's not as if it was just a couple ha- thousands of people who made the Holocaust possible. It was tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people who knew exactly what was going on. Can you clarify? Uh, Wait, I wanted to point out, please, if I may, that in those nations nations that the Germans and Nazis occupied and the terrorist campaign they waged against the Jewish people wasn't just Nazis. In every country they occupied, they had... um, uh, multitudes of willing assistants in this campaign. So w- what the Germans did was just bring out this anti-Semitism, even in the occupied countries, because those campaigns went on. Uh, the, the SS didn't do it all by themselves. Uh, the SS led many raids, but a lot of locals were involved in that campaign, and I had to point that out. It wasn't that's very, just the Germans and the Nazis. Yeah, that's very true. Um, there were a lot of collaborators, um, and you know, e- even if even some of the folks who weren't actively persecuting Jews were involved in rounding them up and exporting them to concentration camps. Um, and even if they weren't manning the camps themselves, they were they were facilitating the Holocaust. No doubt about it. A good point. Mm. One one of the, one of the questions that uh, I want to have a clarification is: Was Hitler's a government a socialist or a communist? Because there's been debates back and forth. No, he was not a social. He was not a communist. He was a socialist. No, he wasn't a socialist. He was a communist. Can you keep, can you provide us the distinction of what he was and what his government actually was? Yeah, I, well, I you know what, well, Dean. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to yield the floor to you in a minute. But that question is uh, something because uh, I'll challenge you, your question with the question. You tell me the difference between uh, authoritarian socialism and communism or fascism. To me, it, it, it's all the wolf of the same color. Dean, how do you see it? So I, I, I would align myself with your statement. It's, it was a totalitarian, ruthless, dictatorial sort of, of regime. Uh, I mean, it's, it wasn't like a pure utopian sort of communism, meaning a commune. Um, it wasn't quite the oligarchy that Soviet Russia was. Um, but it was a totalitarian regime uh, with all the power vested in one person, um, and he ran it as a dictatorship. 
Um, I don't, and it was fascist and it was oppressive. I think those are the key elements: the concentration of power in one person, um, and 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 with oppressive, very oppressive tendencies. Those things go hand in hand, of course. So what gov- what what government has come close after Hitler has come close to being similar to Hitler in modern in the modern uh, history? Boy, well, just so- look at any Marxist. Any Marxist Bolshevik government? Yeah, I would say those totalitarian governments come the closest. Uh, maybe Fidel Castro's in in our hemisphere. Fidel's Castro, right. uh, Fidel Castro's uh, Cuba. Um, but how about uh, Chairman? How about Chairman Mao in in in, uh, in China? I think he yes, killed over I, I eighty Mao, million. Mao and Stalin. Um, yeah, they killed tens of millions of their own citizens. Um, so yeah, those were terrible regimes as well. Yeah, you also had Pol Pot, uh, you had uh, Ortega in uh, Nicaragua, and uh, the, the Ortega, by the way, that Mayor Del Blasio, or whatever name he's using these days, I think his original <laughs> name was like Schickelgruber or something. No, but his original name Del original, Blasio of New York City went down to celebrate with uh, Mr. Ortega and the Sandinistas some kind of anniversary. I think the anniversary was the uh, 10,000th Patriot Nicaraguan that they slaughtered. I think that's what they were celebrating. Yeah. By the way, uh, his his actual real name is Warren Wilhelm. That's his real name. But anyway, uh, Dean. I was close. Chicken Gruber, that was close. You you, you were, you were. I'll give you credit for that. Uh, Dean, let's expand now on, uh, in regards to your book, The Untold Story of American Dealing Deals with the Devil. What, what's the book about? I mean, it has, I know that it has to do with the, 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 the general, Hans, what was his name, Hans Kamler? Yeah, Kamler. Uh, yeah, so if you can expand on, on if, sure. uh, in regards sure. to the book. Yeah, and thanks for that opportunity. I, I think sure. I've already mentioned that that this guy was evil, meaning he was he he helped make the Holocaust possible uh, by building the camps, putting the ovens, the gas chambers, uh, and uh, then he turned his talents to slave labor, running the slave labor regime of Germany. A lot of your listeners probably know that uh, when they weren't killing Jews, they would take the healthiest Jews, uh, enslave them in concentration camps and use them to help the Germany's war effort, meaning uh, work in slave conditions, building munitions, building rockets, building uh, anything military or even civilian things. But they were, they were treated as slaves, and to live in a slave labor camp was itself a death sentence. It wasn't as immediate as being sent to a gas chamber, but uh, I studied these slave labor camps, and some of them had survival rates that were, uh, I mean, just abysmal. The good ones, you had a one in four chance of dying in a year. Uh, the worst that I found, you had an 80% chance of dying in the first three weeks of being there. Uh, so these, these were terrible places to, to go, and these were places that were run by Hans Kammler. Uh, he he did so well at these things that by the end of the war, he was elevated to the level of Obergruppenführer, which is the highest commission rank in the SS. He was the only only man to be elevated to that rank in the final year of the war. And as he was elevated, he was put in charge of all of Germany's secret weapons. It's radar, it's nuclear weapons, it's rockets. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about the uh, the vengeance weapons uh, of the Nazis, the V1 and V2 rocket. Uh, mm. but those were weapon systems that Hans Kammler ruled over. He controlled the rocket team. Uh, that made the V1 and V2, the vengeance weapons. And it was Hans Kammler who moved the rocket team uh, near the end of the war so that they could be delivered by him to the U.S. government in in an attempt to erase his Holocaust past. Uh, he made a deal with the Americans, gave us several hundred rocket scientists, who, by the way, Werner von Braun was the key rocket scientist. Um, uh, they came to the United States. Von Braun helped put us on the moon, helped build our ICBM, helped us win the Cold War. Um, and in, in making that deal, Hans Kammler tried to erase his past um, and rehabilitate himself, um, you know, erase his Holocaust past and save his own life. 
The problem with the whole theory that I just laid out is at the end of the war, uh, Hans Kammler supposedly walked off onto into the woods and killed himself. But as, as we show in the sort of climax of the book, he didn't kill himself. He actually surrendered to the U.S. Army. So uh, the book is a, it's sort of a page-turning thriller. It really reads like it's fiction. Um, I mean, there are so many spectacular revelations in the book. I would have thought, uh, if I hadn't you know, been involved in the research and the writing, I would have thought some of it's made up. But it's all absolutely true. It's just fascinating. Wow. Now, you, you mentioned that some of these uh, Nazi leaders were basically, they, they, they left Germany. Now, I've been told for a long time that a lot of them went to South America. I mean, they, uh, a lot of the South American countries actually took a lot of these Nazi, uh, uh, Hitler, uh, wartime evil individuals. What was the yes. reason behind? What was the reason behind these countries in South America taking all these Nazi leaders? Well, that's a good question. So, uh, first of all, uh, th- there were a lot of Germans in South America before the war and during the war yes. and and after the war, and a lot of them are just German citizens. There, there was, right. uh, but as you say, there were a lot of Nazis. The, uh, uh, you know, if you think about. Um, uh, the, the German war makers, the Nazis, you know, are worse than just the regular German army and German sailors. Those were just regular German citizens that were fighting a war for their country. The Nazis were the real ideologues, and within the Nazis uh, were the SS, the, the Schutzstaffel. Those were the, the worst of the worst, if you will, and that's where Hans Kammler lived. But a lot of those Nazis and SS guys, the, the folks that, ro- that that rose up to certain ranks uh, as the war was ending, uh, you know, a year before the war was over, um, everyone realized Germany was going to lose the war. It took them a long time uh, to lose the war. Um, and a lot of the people with means um, and rank um, and a little bit of money started to make their exit strategies, uh, and they looked for places to go. And what they were looking for were hospitable fascist regimes, uh, countries uh, run like Argentina by Perón, uh, that would host host them, that were receptive to them. Um, They had a lot to offer. You know, by 1943, about midway through the war, Germany had exported more gold uh, than it possessed before the war started. So they were offshoring gold, they were offshoring art, they were offshoring technology, um, all for a Fourth Reich. Um, but places in South America um, were anxious to get these uh, high-ranking Germans because they were efficient. A lot of them were scientists. A lot of them were technicians. Um, they were highly educated people, uh, and they were welcome in, in many countries in South America and in the Middle East as well, believe it or not. Yeah, that, that I'm, I'm fully aware because a lot of individuals will say, wow, there's these individuals that speak Spanish and, and, and they're blonde and blue eyes and they're in South America, but the, you know, they have, they have a, a, a German name, but they're Spanish and they don't look Spanish. You know, it's basically, right. it's because there was a, such an influx of Europeans and Germans that moved down to South America that were welcome. And then their kids were born. And, and then, it, so I'm glad you clarify that. Now, in regards to um, the involvement, of can I say big, before we move on? Can I say one more thing about South America? Cause, uh, yes, go ahead. We, yeah, we cover this Me in the book. Me too. After him. Me too. After him, Cisco. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. We, we cover uh-huh. this in the book that we we found a 1953 CIA report. So the war ended in 1945. World War II ended in 1945. In 1953, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, Central Intelligence Agency writes a report that reads like an alarm bell, and it's a report on South America and the tens of thousands of visas that were granted, the hundreds of thousands of Germans that lived there, a lot of Nazis that lived there, uh, German Chamber of Commerce, uh, small towns and villages that look like Bavarian villages, um, and lots of technicians and scientists among them, lots of Nazi leaders. And this report, when I say it, it reads like an alarm bell, they were worried about uh, the resurgence of the Nazi Party uh, through South America, a Fourth Reich, essentially. Um, 
and you know there is a there is a meeting of Nazi officials and government officials and businessmen in uh, Europe in 1944, about seven months before the war ended, where they they planned this mass exodus, this um, this way to offshore all the technology and the gold and preserve it for later, and that's what the CIA report is talking about. So you're exactly right with regard to uh, to, to South America as a sort of Nazi enclave. Definitely. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to add again more uh, my Forrest Gump life experience. Uh, I was responsible. <laughs> I, I was responsible for a decade for the, the Macy Corporation import. Uh, operations and our merchants were in South America and several of them made one trip only to Paraguay everyone's heard of Argentina you you know uh, uh, harboring Nazi fugitives but these buyers came back from Paraguay petrified they told me every other street corner and and this is in the 80s by the way so God knows what it was like in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But they said in the 80s, like, every other intersection has a Jeep with troops or an armored car or something. The streets were quiet. You know, people just walking around, going about their business. You you could hear a pin drop because of it. So uh, I have to wonder, uh, in that kind of uh, secretive uh, dictatorship environment, that uh, the, the Nazis would find a fine umbrella to hide beneath. You know, especially uh, they had wealth, and they're paying off these uh, leaders. That's also what's happening. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, 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 that folks with former Nazis and people with Nazi tendencies will thrive in those oppressive countries, those uh, fascist countries, those dictatorial countries, totalitarian countries. Um, that's that's where they feel most at home. Um, and, and you're right; they had a they brought a lot of value with them, whether it was uh, diamonds and gold or technology and know-how. know-how. Um, a lot, you know, you see in South American dictators a lot of military aspirations, and and right. might might equals right. And if you can bring a few Nazi uh, rocketeers down there to help you build uh, long-range artillery, you're going to be the, the big dog on the block. So there, there, was a, there was a scramble for German technology at the end of the war. Uh, the Americans really won that contest, but um, lots of countries got bits and pieces here and there, and uh, lots of South American countries did, did okay during that process, too. Yeah, Dean, hold on. We have a, another caller, 605-202. Do you have a call? Do you have a question for Dean? Yeah. During your research, did you come across anything that was um, credible with regards to paperclip? And did you come across any kind of documentation that showed how close the Nazis were to an atomic bomb? Uh, yes to both of those questions. As to Operation Paperclip, um, that, that was a scheme under which the United States scoured the continent as it uh, as it took back territory from the Third Reich and identified German scientists and technicians, uh, in many cases sanitized their records. A lot of them were just regular scientists and technicians. They weren't Nazis. They were Germans. Um, they might have been, you know, good Germans and sympathetic to the German government, but they weren't. They weren't Nazis. And, and a lot of those came to the United States, but a lot of Nazis came too. A lot of folks who were involved in. Um, in the Holocaust to one extent or another, or more likely even in, in slave labor. And they weren't eligible for citizenship in the United States. They shouldn't have been brought to this country, but a lot of them were brought here, and their records were sanitized uh, when they came here, meaning uh, records were destroyed or rewritten or uh, things were omitted. Well, falsified, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, you know, thousands of people came to this country um, uh, under that under that guise, and some of them were rocket scientists that I mentioned that Hans Kammler delivered to us. Um, but they came from every industry you can imagine. Germany was very very far advanced in um, uh, radar, uh, anti tank guns, shaped charges, but also things like synthetics, nylon, synthetic rubber, synthetic fuels. We wanted all of that technology, the Americans did, and we certainly didn't want the Russians to have it because 
everybody knew long before the war was over that the Russians were going to be our next enemy, and they knew uh, they were going to be an existential threat. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the I read that the Russians communism. had their share. Yeah. The Russians got their share. Yeah. They did, um, and they were able to detonate a nuclear weapon by 1953, uh, and there were German nuclear scientists involved in that project. Uh, that, they did a little bit of catching up in terms of nuclear science, but uh, we were the big, the United States, we were the biggest winners in terms of that technology. Uh, I was interested to learn in that scramble for technology at the war. It was ending. We weren't just competing with, with, with the Russians. We were competing with uh, with uh, England and with France as well. And if we found stuff, we I didn't necessarily imagine. share it with them. Yeah. Uh, as to your yeah, second question, uh, the second question is about uh, nuclear nuclear research. And uh, you know, we found a few strains of nuclear research that haven't been reported before that Germany was engaged in. Uh, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, as the war was really getting underway, Hitler decided that the war would be so quickly won that the research that his nuclear scientists were doing uh, wouldn't lead to a bomb in time. So um, everybody thinks he suspended that research, continued a little bit of nuclear research as to power, meaning, you know, how to power a submarine or a, uh, a, an aircraft carrier with nuclear power, or um, uh, so propulsion or um, energy, so having a nuclear power plant. But um, everybody thinks Germany suspended its nuclear weapons research. We found that's not true. Now, I can't tell you that they were really, really close to making a weapon, but I can tell you that all the arguments, uh, post-war arguments, um, made by the Americans uh, that dismissed German nuclear research, I can undermine those very easily. We, we decided at the end of the war that Germany didn't get close to a nuclear weapon, and we we base that decision on two threads of information that I think are very, uh, very infirm. They're, they're not uh, they're not on good uh, solid ground. Well, when for the Manhattan Project, when we had Einstein and Fermi, et cetera, weren't they motivated by the fact that they were afraid that the uh, the, the Nazis were pretty close to uh, discovering how to um, utilize nuclear energy? Oh yes. Now it's very clear that. Uh, you know, as the war was progressing, nobody nobody thought that Germany was far from getting a nuclear weapon. I mean, nuclear fission uh, was discovered in Germany in 1939 by Otto Hahn, so they they had a head start, and there were great fears that they were going to uh, perfect nuclear weapons before the end of the war. And we proceeded on that basis, uh, and we were very very concerned about that. But what what conventional history says is, as the war is ending, we're putting our teams. Um, in Germany, uh, you know, it, through Italy, France, and Germany, and studying what the Germans had accomplished, and we concluded they weren't even close to building a nuclear bomb. What, what I'm saying and what we write about in the book is the information that we base those conclusions on is, is terrible. It's not good information. So, mm-hmm. Dean, Dean. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Thank you, caller. In regards to the okay. future the future of American national security, uh, how do you see that at this stage as you did when, you, when Hitler was, uh, or Germany was, you know, were they looking at security because they were, they, they were building up all these enemies? You know, uh, England, the United States were, were basically going after uh, the Hitler regime in regards to security, did they ever plan for having German national security, or they basically just went day by day? Was there a plan in case they had to overcome a battle with the rest of the world? Uh, a plan on behalf of the Germans, you mean? Um, the, I mean the German government, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, so, the, so the original German plan was to was to increase its living space. Hitler talked about Lebensraum, which is a German word that translates as living space. So his, okay. his, his real vision was to take back Austria as a proper German territory, uh, parts of Czechoslovakia, because there were ethnic Germans there, but then really to sweep through Poland and into the Baltic countries, Lithuania and Estonia, uh, and, and then into Russia and Ukraine and Crimea, 
and to populate those areas, not just to conquer them and rule those people, but to move those people away and populate that entire you know, massive expanse of country with ethnic Germans. That was his vision. Uh, he never really thought about going to war with France and England. Uh, he, I don't think he really wanted that. He was told okay. by he was told by his military advisors that if he invi- if he invaded Poland, um, France and Germany would stand down. France and Germany had signed a, an agreement with Poland that they would defend Poland if Poland was was invaded. But Hitler Hitler was told by his generals that's not going to happen. We can invade Poland, we'll win, and and France and England will sit this sit this out. Um, and to that point, they had. I mean, at this point, uh, Germany had taken Austria and lots of Czechoslovakia. Um, but what happened was, uh, in September of 1939, Hitler invades Poland, and two or three days later, England and France declare war on him. So he unexpectedly bought himself into a war uh, with uh, the Western allies. Got he never it. wanted to. He Got never it. wanted to declare war on the United States either. Um, you know. The United States were supplying the Allies, and, and but otherwise sitting the war out until Pearl Harbor was bombed. So, Got it. Mark. Yes, uh, I found. Uh, you know, when after Hitler invaded Poland, let's not uh, neglect the fact that a few weeks later Stalin invaded Poland from the other side. Uh, well, yeah. That's a really good and, point. And uh, he did that. I'm sure he did that because once France and England declared war on Germany, they couldn't declare war on him too. It, their declaration of war was a carte blanche, I feel, for uh, Stalin to move into Poland. Um, and, uh, you know, I have deep ties to this team. Uh, my, my grandfather spent almost a year in a Mussolini prison in in Italy. Uh, That part of my family was Maltese. Uh, We suffered a multitude of family deaths during the bombing of Malta. Uh, You know, it was bombed vociferously by the Italians and Germans. Uh, So I'm very attuned to this uh, World War II business. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Sorry to hear about the family history, but you're exactly right. There was a, there was something called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between Germany and Russia to be allies. And for the first half of the war, they were allies, or the first months of the war, I'd say, they were allies. And you're right, uh, within a week after Germany invading Poland from the uh, from the west, the Russians came across the east. They sort of met in the middle, uh, and, and they were allies until uh, under what's called Ar- Operation Barbarossa, Hitler very unexpectedly invaded Russia, and that's when he really got himself into trouble. Because at this point, he's he's fighting Russia in the east and fighting the Germans and the uh, and the Brits in the west. I mean, start fighting right. the French and the and the Brits in the west. Right, Dean. Uh, the, there's been a lot of uh, discussion in regards to how big business, both in the United States and in Europe basically helped Hitler expand his war on the people in Germany and all yeah. over, all over the world. Uh, one of the big companies that was basically accused was IBM. What, what do you know, um, what can you expand on, 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 on the dealings, on the business, corporate investment? Sure. sure. This is something we looked at pretty carefully, actually, because – um, we, we, we were very interested in the motivations behind all of this. And I can tell you it's not surprising um, that you know, between World War I and World War II, there were a lot of interactions between American businesses and European businesses, including in Europe. Um, and, and there was a lot of back and forth financially and in terms of industry. Um, and, and there's nothing untoward about that. That's just how the world was globalizing and how businesses were becoming international at that point. Um, there is um, a lot of evidence that um, IBM was providing um, data that the Germans were able to use and methods of, of storing and, and using data that the Germans were able to use to identify Jews throughout throughout Europe. Um, that there's also, and it's very clear to me, it's even more substantiated, I would say, that during the war, 
I mentioned slavery and the fact that Hans Kammler, the hidden Nazi, um, was in charge of Germany's slave labor. Um, they, they had hundreds of thousands of slaves that were used by the SS to build roads and to build German weapons and to, to build German buildings. Uh, but these slaves were also rented out to German businesses. Um, to 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 build many of the same things. So a lot of businesses you've heard of today, Siemens and um, the, the the German equivalent of General Electric, um, Messerschmitt, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche. A lot of these companies were using and knowingly using uh, slave labor during the war, um, and not just to help the German war effort, but they were profiting uh, wildly in this. They were making things that the German government was buying from them. Uh, and they were using discounted slave labor to do it. So, um, we so so there's that aspect of business involvement. We, we also found a lot of um, overlapping boards. So there were a lot of German companies. I mentioned the German version of General Electric. It's called AEG. Um, a lot of these companies had American American corollaries with members that served on a board in Germany and served on the board in America. Um, so it was it was a pretty tightly um, integrated uh, economy between the United States and Germany. And one thing I, I found that was particularly interesting that not a lot of people have written about um, or done a lot of research on is, uh, you know, I mentioned that people knew the war was going to end well in advance of the end of the war. Uh, one of the big questions that got debated on the American side and the, between the Americans, the Brits, and the French was how the war was going to end and what kind of post-war Germany there would be, uh, whether right. or not a lot of people wanted an, an agrarian sort of rural Germany. There'd be a bunch of farmers. Uh, they'd be innocuous and benign. Others wanted an industrial, military Germany that could act as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. And you can imagine, depending on you know what investments you had made and what businesses uh, in America yeah. and elsewhere, you wanted the war to end one way or the other. Um, and uh, John Foster Dulles and, and Alan Dulles, who became uh, the head of our CIA and, and the uh, head of our State Department, um, a lot of folks have talked about how they did pretty well after the war, um, in no small part because, because Germany was left largely intact, West Germany, that is, I should say, um, and became a, a, an economic dynamo. I mean, they're still Definitely. probably the most vibrant economy in, in Europe today. Um, they are. A lot of American businesses did okay because of that after the war. Definitely. I just want a, a, a quick uh, promotional. Uh, this show is sponsored by Students for Better, Better Future. Our show writer is Doreen Ann. She is fantastic. Please donate to Students for Better Future. Uh, she does a great job with that foundation that she has. And thank you, Doreen and. Uh, can you promote your, your uh, where can we get your book, your website, so our sure. listening audience? Yeah, um, Dean Reuter Books on Facebook or uh, my website, deanreuter at gmail.com. But the book is, you know, if you can get yourself to a bookstore, it's, it's in bookstores everywhere. But probably the real place to buy it now uh, during this era is uh, <laughs> Amazon, Amazon.com. It's done really well there. You go on there and you find it. It's got over 70 uh, reviews, and almost every one of them is a five-star review. So it's, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble online. Uh, anywhere you buy books, you can find it. And it's available, I should say. You can get it in hard copy, but you can also get it in Kindle books, and there's an audible Bang. version if, if you want to listen to it instead of read it. Definitely. definitely. Uh, some, summarize, if you could give us a quick summer, 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 uh, summary of, uh, of the, uh, the book. Well, I'd call it a page-turning thriller about a, a massively powerful and evil Nazi general who made a secret deal with the United States and was involved in a cover-up with the United States for 75 years after the end of the war. Got it. Mark, last question for, uh, for Dean or Colin? Nothing. Just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time, sir. Well, thank you both, gentlemen. It's been it's been a lot of fun being on with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> right, anytime right, you want to come back, you're welcome. All right. So next week we have another special guest. We'll definitely uh, we'll we'll have it. We'll promote it. 
Mark, have a great week, and, and let, let us know about that rally in, uh, in New Jersey so we can basically uh... – all right? God bless America. We have a great um, week. Good night.